ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, I have a fantastic show lined up this week. Joining me will be Burton Malkiel, investing legend, founding father of indexing, of course, author of one of my favorite books, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, and he's currently chief investment officer at Wealthfront. This is going to be so much uh, fun. We're going to have an open-ended conversation around a number of topics, everything from Burton's views on meme stocks and the financial markets right now, bonds and inflation. We'll talk about the rise of indexing and ETFs and whether this poses any problems. We'll cover ESG. I may even try to sneak in a Bitcoin question just because I can't help myself. Uh, but I am so excited for this. Uh, th this will be a real treat for me. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as well. Now, also joining me this week, will be Sunil Wahal, professor of finance at Arizona State University and academic consultant to Avantis Investors, who currently offers eight ETFs, already nearing $6.5 billion in assets. And I think many investors know Avantis for their DFA-like approach to ETFs, right? They emphasize factors like size, value, profitability. And so Sunil and I are going to discuss those factors how Avantis measures them. We'll talk about their importance in the context of the current market environment. And then I also want to ask uh, Sunil about meme stocks as well, especially since he teaches college students, right, who are perhaps uh, Robinhood traders. Uh, so look forward to that. And then to start this week, I actually have ETF Trends Managing Editor Laura Krigger on the line with me right now. Our topic, you ask? ESG ETFs. What else? Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, thanks for joining me this week. I'm so glad to be here. Well, look, last time you were on, we talked Bitcoin, right? Which clearly means we have to talk ESG this week. Uh, although <laughs> I will say I have a little surprise for you later, which I think you'll like. Uh, but let's uh -oh. start. <laughs> let's start high level <laughs> with ESG ETF flows, and then we can certainly drill into some other areas. Um, so, so look, we are just past the midway point of the year. 
Obviously, ETFs as a whole are already nearing their annual record, which will likely, you know, they'll obliterate that. But give us a rundown on ESG ETFs. Are they on record pace as well? Yes and no. So on the one hand, we are seeing brisk inflows into ESG ETFs so far for the year. I ran the numbers this morning. It looks like we're up to about 23 billion in new net inflows for uh, ESG ETFs for the year. And that's that's pretty good, right? When I first started covering ESG ETFs a few years ago, it was considered a good year if these uh, funds brought in 5 billion, right? Um, so if we keep pace uh, or if we keep up with the pace we're on, we're probably on track to see about maybe 45 to 50 billion um, in, in new cash for the space. Now, that said, we're actually a little bit behind last year. Uh, last year, ESG ETFs brought in $89 billion in new net inflows, uh, which is the most that they had ever brought in. So some of that slowdown is, is probably because of the just general cool off in the sector, right? So optimism was running pretty hot in the lead up and the weeks following uh, Biden's election. And that lifted clean energy stocks to the stratosphere. There's been somewhat of a pullback in clean energy since a resurgence in kind of the traditional fossil fuel prices as the economy has reopened, crude's up to, what, 74 a barrel now. So some of that optimism has uh, not waned, but maybe come back to earth, <laughs> come back to rational levels. And uh, as a result, some of the performance chasing that you saw in the flows into ESG ETFs that's, you know, tempered, it's petered out, it's reverse course a bit. One question I have here on ESG ETF flows, <clears throat> I'm curious, is there any way to parse uh, organic retail flows versus institutional demand or the, uh, the, the, the bring your own assets? It just seems like there, there's always talk of flows into these products, I, I think especially in the broader base stuff. But I just wonder if it's all BlackRock model portfolios or, or pensions seed in these ETFs. I mean, you look this year, the top ETF launch is that uh, BlackRock U.S. Carbon Transition Readiness ETF, ticker LCTU. But my understanding is the bulk of the assets in that ETF came from the California Teachers Retirement System. I'm just curious, is there any way to drill down to see, you know, whether this is grassroots demand or is it all institutional? You know, that's a really good question. And da uh, trade data is anonymous, right? You can't ever really know, um, you know, barring 13F filings, uh, which are reported on a quarterly delay, you can't really know who is buying uh, a given ETF at any given time. Now, that said, uh, there are some pretty strong clues that give us uh, an indication of which ETFs are being purchased um, or, or being invested in for model portfolios and for institutional, uh, by institutional clients for model portfolios. And like you said, many of the biggest flows uh, getting ETFs year to date have been funds that uh, are in model portfolio situations like the BlackRock uh, ETFs. Uh, we're seeing most of the, the biggest flows attractors being these replacement style funds, these core asset allocation ETFs in broad U.S. large caps and developed market stocks, you know, these these uh, broad asset allocation funds with 
just a few light ESG screens, right? These are these are ESG for investors who don't want anything too radical. They're there to uh, replace or supplement existing core exposures. They hug benchmarks pretty closely. They provide the same basic return in sector exposures as you know your vanilla funds. Uh, and 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 they're good uh, for model portfolio usage. Now that said, we do have sort of uh, concept album style standouts. We've got uh, the iClean um, that's uh, ticker iClean. That's the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF. That one's taken in three billion in new net cash. Uh, a slew of other clean energy ETFs as well. Uh, you know, kind of skinned on the same theme. There's Wisdom Tree. Their uh, XSOE, that's the ticker for their uh, governance screened emerging markets ETF that doesn't have exposure to state owned enterprises. Uh, it's, you know, taken in 1.5 billion in new net money year to date. It's, it's a offers a much different exposure for the emerging market space than uh, what's currently on the market in the vanilla side of things. So there are a few breakout stars, I guess, uh, but you know, to your point, by and large, most of what is bringing in the flows has been these model portfolio core asset allocation funds. You began to allude to this earlier, but when you look at flows perhaps being a, a little bit lighter this year, maybe not that, that record pace, I'm curious mm-hmm. what impact you think performance is having. So obviously we saw this rotation towards value earlier this year. Tech was a laggard, though that's reversed recently. You know, I wonder if maybe the tech underperformance impacted ESG ETFs at all, since they do tend to overweight the sector. Uh, If you want to get into the clean energy ETFs, obviously those were all the rage last year. You mentioned ICLN, the uh, iShares Global Clean Energy ETF. You could look at PBW, the Invesco Wilder Hill Clean Energy ETF. I think even TAN, right, the uh, Invesco Solar ETF, those were all uh, just huge, some of the top-performing ETFs. But if I look this year, they're all trailing the S&P 500 by uh, like 30 percentage points. Just high level, I mean, what impact do you think performance is having uh, on flows here? I I think it has a lot to do with it. Uh, You know, this, this many clean energy ETFs, like you said, are deeply in the tech sector which also tends to be uh, kind of a growthier space. It leans more towards growth. And so we've seen this rotation towards value uh, this year as well. So I don't think that's helped either. Um, But there's also another factor too that I think sometimes gets overlooked when we're talking about clean energy ETFs specifically. And that is that um, there's a fundamental commodity pricing issue here. Alternative energy prices are connected to fossil fuel prices in a way that I'm not sure many investors uh, still or or yet internalize. Because, you know, if you look at last winter, when clean energy ETFs were running through the roof, you know, that that was even as oil and gas prices were still in a crunch, right? And and that didn't necessarily make a ton of sense because, um, you know, from a supply-demand perspective, clean energy is generally helped by high oil and gas prices, because the more it costs to buy a barrel of oil, then the better a kilowatt hour that's generated by soil or solar, not soil, solar or wind or hydroelectric is going to look. So 
there's more incentive there for uh, companies to switch to a lower or zero emissions energy source when oil prices are high or to engage in carbon allowances, right? And, and, and to use that market as well. So we're starting to see energy prices come back to uh, you know, a higher level, to a new normal level maybe. Um, at the same time, optimism in clean energy is starting to be tempered back with reality. And so you're starting to see the supply demand fundamentals, I guess, reach up uh, or match up with each other again, I think. Laura, briefly before we get to uh, the little surprise I have for you, um, what, what are your expectations for ESG ETFs moving forward, just in terms of investor uptake? And I know you and I have kind of been around on this topic plenty of times in, in the past, but I mean, are you still generally optimistic on the prospects for ESG ETFs? I am generally optimistic. I think my perspective on which funds are going to see the flows and are going to take up investor assets has changed. And I'll tell you why, because, you know, as we discussed before, model portfolio ETFs, the, the ETFs that slot really nicely into those core asset allocation uh, models, those clearly have been the most um, attractive ones. The The pockets of maybe the more interesting spaces uh, where ESG might actually provide a real concrete value, I'm not seeing as much uptick there, right? Like for example, fixed income. So we're seeing fairly anemic year-to-date flows into ESG bond ETFs. And I find that really interesting because almost everyone you talk to says fixed income is a space that really cries out for an ESG approach, where the idea of digging deep into corporate governance and climate change risk and you know all of these ESG factors could be of real concrete use to investors. However, this continues to be a place where assets just really aren't accumulating yet outside of, again, a handful of iShares products that are being used in these model portfolios. And, you know, in this particular case, I think maybe it might have less to do with the the ESG products themselves and more to do with sort of a general disinterest in fixed income this year between rate risk and and really low yields. You talk to advisors, almost to a person, they say, why would I put my clients in bonds right now, right? And ESG take just doesn't solve that problem. That said, you know, I would be interested to see if this changes uh, as, as the environment for bonds improves, when it improves, because we know it will eventually, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's ever going to be a theme that takes off. I'm keeping my eye on that pretty closely. No, I think all that's well said. And I'll just add that I do think education across the space is still lacking. I think investors have a lot of confusion in terms of what they're actually getting with some of these ESG products and that they can't make heads or tails of the different options on the market. And so I think more, you know, we can debate the the merits of an ESG approach, but at the end of the day, investors have to understand what they're investing in, and I'm not so sure that that we've you know made the progress that we need there on that front. So, completely uh, agree. In, in any event, so with the remaining time, I told you I had a little surprise for you, and while we're on this topic of ESG and clean energy, guess what? I'm going to pivot to Bitcoin. No. <laughs> your, your head's going to explode. <laughs> I knew you could do it. <laughs> So, uh, look, there is this uh, Veridi Clean Energy Crypto Mining and Infrastructure ETF that's uh, set to launch, I believe, any day now. 
And this will obviously compete with the growing number of blockchain ETFs out there, which I'm not going to get started down that path in terms of why all those exist. However, I am curious, do do you think a product like this will resonate with with investors? Do you think they want this? Uh, So... So I'm of two minds, right? So there there are already four blockchain ETFs on the market and two others that were around that have already closed. It's kind of a, a tough thing to be a seventh mover in such a narrow space, uh, especially with one that has already cleared or that, that has a fund that has already cleared uh, kind of its orbit, right? Block is a billion dollar fund at this point and its next nearest competitor um BLCN, it's, you know, not even close to the same size. Uh, You know, I'm always happy to see, uh, you know, new ideas and, and, you know, I wish them the best of luck. Um, You know, let me, let me, let me say this. I think there is a value towards taking a greener take on crypto mining and the cryptocurrency space in general. Um, you know, you've seen the same reports I have, right? Crypto mining constitutes a real percentage of the global emissions profile out there. And we are supposed to be reducing our emissions, not increasing them. So, and Bitcoin isn't the same, Bitcoin mining isn't the same thing as say oil exploration, right? A government can tell say Exxon or BP to reduce its emissions profile or Exxon can decide it themselves, or they could have a board takeover where it's decided for them, right? In the case of Exxon. But Bitcoin mining is decentralized. It's a global affair. There is nobody there to inform that they have to reduce emissions. There's no standardization in how mining activity occurs. It's done by individuals. It's done in small groups with no coordination or little coordination. So how are you going to force thousands, tens of thousands of Bitcoin miners to reduce their emissions. You can't. Literally, the only way you can do that is um, by changing, is through, I guess, the open market, right? So there is a PR issue here. Bitcoin is, um, and crypto mining and crypto assets are, are, are shouldering this mantle as kind of the, the new crude oil, I guess, you know, that's killing the planet. So that's obviously an image that crypto enthusiasts want to avoid. Uh, and I know that there are several, I know of several large investors and large asset management firms that won't even touch crypto because they are concerned about this environmental issue. So, you know, if they, if Aridi thinks that they've got uh, a, a skin on this, that's going to present a cleaner approach to Bitcoin uh, that, you know, investors will find more palatable, maybe they really do have a have a shot here. Well, and I think it'll be interesting to see if this factors into the uh, physical Bitcoin ETF race yeah. at all, right? I know you're aware there's this filing, the One River Carbon Neutral Bitcoin Trust. So this will hold Bitcoin, but then use these uh, tokenized carbon credits to try and offer carbon neutral exposure to Bitcoin. 
And I've heard uh, O-Shares Kevin O'Leary, he's talked a lot about Bitcoin mining. He actually said he he doesn't own random ETFs with blood coin in them, obviously a reference to a, to, to blood <laughs> diamonds. I, I do wonder if O-Shares might throw their hat in the Bitcoin ETF ring at some point. But, you know, this could be interesting because it is certainly a way to differentiate what's going to be, without question, a brutally competitive segment of ETFs, whether we want to talk about the, the blockchain ETFs or obviously the physical Bitcoin ETF space is going to be highly competitive. I think that's interesting. Something else I, I, I want to point out before uh, I, I let you go, I'm not sure if you saw this, but Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas mentioned on Twitter last week that with this Veridi ETF, it looks like the SEC might have made them drop ESG from their name. So this was originally filed um, as the, the Veridi ESG, uh, I, I can't remember, you know, crypto mining and mm-hmm. infrastructure ETF, and they made them change it to clean energy. And, I, you know, I thought to myself, I'm not really sure what the distinction is here. You know, I looked, there, there are, what, 80 ETFs with ESG in their name. It's like, what's the difference? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I mean, we know that the SEC has been fairly touchy about crypto uh, ETFs and and crypto adjacent ETFs. And now they're getting more careful about the usage of ESG as well. Uh, We're seeing that they've made uh, or they're they're planning on making ESG disclosures and nomenclature a priority in the coming year. So I'm not too surprised about that. Um, You know, it's sort of that move makes sense to me, Um, you know. I, I, one thing I wanted to say about a One River uh, and their filing, I think it's really interesting that they're using the carbon offset uh, program. Nothing is different about the way that they are holding Bitcoin, about how the Bitcoin's being mined. Nothing has changed. They're just using those carbon offsets to sort of, they're, they're going to buy shares of a forest or, or some other carbon sink to offset the emissions coming from the Bitcoin mining. And carbon trading is a really fascinating market uh, with its own structural um, you know, issues, perception issues. And, um, but it's one that's sort of taken off. Look at the, the Crane Shares uh, carbon trading ETF, KRBN. It, it is really, it's taken in hundreds of millions of dollars this year alone. It, this is an idea, the right idea for the right time. So um, you know, is, is carbon trading, is that a, a realistic solution to... Uh, the greening of crypto mining? I don't know, but it is a start. So, uh, you know, it, it is an indication that folks realize there's a there's an issue here, there's a perception issue here, and they're trying to address it. So, Well, maybe we'll see that One River Bitcoin ETF in like 2025 or 2030 at the pace the SEC's <laughs> on. Uh, Laura, excellent stuff this week. Uh, fun chatting. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. That was ETF Trends, Laura Krigger. Looking to invest in the forefront of change impacting our lives? Take a look at biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Why? Because biotechnology companies recently developed effective vaccines for COVID-19, and semiconductor firms created computer chips that are used across today's growing industries. Close to 20 years ago, NASDAQ developed two indexes to help investors track biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Learn more at Invesco.com IBBQ or Invesco.com slash SOXQ. IBBQ and SOXQ are NASDAQ listed. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-983-0903 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
I am now very pleased to welcome to the podcast Burton Malkiel, founding father of Passive Investing, of course, author of the classic investment book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, which is in its 12th edition now, by the way. Uh, Burton also spent 28 years as the director of the Vanguard Group. He's currently Professor Emeritus and Senior Research Economist at Princeton University. He's Chief Investment Officer at Wealthfront, an advisor to the Emerging Markets Internet and E-Commerce ETF, ticker EMQQ, and he's now on the line with me. Uh, Burton, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me. I'm delighted to do so. Okay, so we are going to cover a lot of ground today. I want to talk about the rise of passive investing, uh, what we're seeing out of these meme stocks. We can certainly talk bonds and inflation, but I want to start with ESG investing. So my last guest was just discussing the growth of ESG ETFs, and I'll tell you, ESG as a whole has been a recurring theme on this podcast. It's really generated quite a bit of debate. Now, my understanding is that you're not necessarily the biggest fan here, that you do have some concerns around ESG investing. So let's start there. ESG has continued garnering just a ton of media attention. Why are you skeptical? Well, it's garnered not only a ton of media uh, attention, but a ton of money. Uh, I'm skeptical for the following reasons. Uh, The idea... Uh, that is touted uh, with ESG investing is that you can uh, do well uh, financially by doing good. And what I worry about is that some of the largest ESG funds and uh, ETFs uh, may do neither. I say may do neither because, first of all, when you look at what's uh, in them uh, and you realize that some of these things depend upon the ESG ratings of professional raters, that you find that the raters uh, simply don't agree. The correlations between raters uh, are as low as 04 in other words, uh, some raters may give uh, uh, an ESG uh, rating that's very good for one company, and the other rater uh, uh, reports it as being uh, very poor. Uh, just to put the rating, the 0.4 correlation in perspective, the rating between Moody's and Standard and Poor's on bond ratings is 0.995. So uh, clearly there's a lot of disagreement. I mean, for example, you have a utility that burns some coal, uh, and one writer says this is terrible, we don't want to touch this, but the utility has uh, been investing scads of money in wind power and promises to be carbon-free by 2035. Uh, And another writer will say, hey, this is a good company, they're doing exactly the right thing, this is just why we want uh, ESG investing. On the G part of it, uh, interestingly enough, uh, one rater thinks that governance at Apple Computer is uh, uh, absolutely perfect and they get a high rating. Another rating uh, puts them uh, right at the bottom of their peer group. 
So the first question that I have uh, about it is that uh, when you look at what's in those funds and you realize there's such disagreement as to whether the company is green or not, you wonder, what am I buying? And then when I look at what's favored, uh, you know, you look at what's, uh, what are some of the top holdings, uh, uh, things like uh, Facebook and MasterCard and Visa. And I understand why they're in there, because uh, they are certainly not carbon intense. But are you really feeling moral and good about companies that have had uh, privacy issues and issues uh, uh, about spewing forth uh, disinformation? Uh, are we really happy about investing in companies that charge exorbitant interest rates on credit card loans? So I guess what I'm worried about is, are we doing well by doing uh, uh, good? Uh, I'm not sure we're doing good, and uh, the expense ratios of these uh, uh, green uh uh, funds are uh, considerably higher than for uh, a simple uh, broad-based index fund, uh, and they're somewhat less diversified. So, uh, yeah, I'm a skeptic. I think it's uh, just fine if around the edges, uh, if you want to invest uh, in uh, uh, companies doing solar paneling or wind power, I think that's great. But I do it that way rather than with a very large fund uh, that you think is going to give you uh, uh, great returns uh, and is going to help society. Uh, I'm not sure you're going to get either. No, I think you make several excellent points there. I, I do think one of the big challenges in the space is that ESG is based on judgment calls, right? It, it's It's subjective. And so trying to construct a portfolio around these various ESG ratings is clearly a challenge. I think another potential challenge here, which is one that I know you've mentioned in the past, is that let's say everyone starts excluding coal companies, which you mentioned earlier. Well, those companies that may be priced at lower valuations, perhaps are undervalued, which means they might offer higher future returns. And so just from a pure investment perspective, I think you could run into some challenges. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And in fact, uh, uh, looking over the uh, empirical work, and it's been all over the map, uh, but uh, some uh, empirical studies have suggested that over certain periods, uh, the so-called green funds uh, have outperformed. But you know what is possibly, or, pro or I might even say probably likely, that in the short run, when a lot of money is flowing into ESG, uh, that maybe the popularity of, quote, green companies uh, makes their price go up uh, and gives them temporarily somewhat higher rates of return. But once the price is up and then they are highly valued relative to their dividends and earnings and growth in the long run, you may very well be likely to get a lower rate of return from them, even if earlier in the game uh, they've given you very good returns. 
No, it's a great point, and I, I think just highlights that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done here, both on the, the academic side and also, I mentioned in, in the prior segment, just on the education side for end investors. Um, you bet. Burton, let's move on and, and talk about the rise of ETFs and passive investing, obviously a topic that is very near and dear to your heart. And I, I guess first, are you surprised at all by how much indexing has grown? Did you ever imagine it would become this big when you were first discussing no, I, it back? I certainly <laughs> uh, didn't. Uh, you know, I first suggested uh, indexing in the first edition of my random workbook in 1973. It got reviewed in Business Week by an investment professional who said, this is the biggest piece of garbage in the world. What a dumb idea. And... Uh, uh, it uh, certainly did not uh, uh, did not immediately strike a chord uh, with anybody. When Jack Bogle actually started the first index fund available for the public in 1976, he had an underwritten offering expected to raise 250 million dollars. He uh, raised 11 million dollars. Uh, the uh, underwriting was an absolute dud. It was called Bogle's uh, Folly, and for many years, that fund attracted uh, almost no money. I used to kid with Jack Bogle that uh, he and I were the only investors uh, in that first index fund. <laughs> so it was very, very slow to take off. Uh, and... Uh, uh, given uh, uh, its initial reception, uh, uh, I would never have expected that it would be as popular uh, as it's become. But I think the, uh, uh, you know, the reason for this, and I certainly hope I've had something to do with it, because, uh, you know, my book has sold now close to two million copies. But I think the reason for the success is that, by God, it works. Uh, as uh, uh, I'm sure your listeners know, uh, Standard & Poor's uh, has been the sort of uh, scorekeeper for how index funds have done, and they publish periodic so-called SPIBA reports, and that is uh, Standard & Poor's indexes uh, versus active. And when you look at these SPIBA reports, you find that each year, Two-thirds of active managers are outperformed by the index. And the ones who outperform one year uh, aren't the same that outperform the next year. You know, Kathy Wood uh, blows the lights out in 2020. Uh, she's had terrible returns in 2021. So that when you compound this over 5, 10, or 15 years, you find over 15-year periods, 90% of active managers underperform the index. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible to outperform. Uh, there are 10% uh, that, uh, uh, that do outperform. But when you try to go active, you're much more likely to be in the lower part of the distribution. Uh, and so uh, indexing has shown that it's not average returns that you get. You know, people say, well, who wants to be mediocre? It isn't mediocre. Uh, it's, in fact, better than 90% uh, of active managers, and I think it's the record of indexing 
that finally have, has convinced people that this is actually a sensible, a very sensible investment strategy. And I continue to believe even more strongly than I did in 1973 that broad base index funds and ETFs uh, ought to be the core of every investment portfolio. Burton, one thing I'd love to hear your perspective on, obviously with the growth of indexing for all the reasons that you just explained, unfortunately, there continues to be a lot of discussion about potential negative ramifications. So I saw a piece in Bloomberg a couple of weeks ago. It was titled, Wall Street Rebels Warn of Disastrous 11 Trillion Index Boom. Uh, there's still a lot of fear-mongering out there about how uh, indexing is distorting price discovery, uh, impeding capitalism, those sorts of things. What's your response to this line of thinking that indexing is somehow bad for our markets? Well, uh, the, the sort of idea is, uh, you know, if everybody indexes, then nobody is going to uh, uh, invest by uh, doing the proper research and that, in fact, uh, you're going to hurt price discovery, uh, and you do need price discovery. If a drug company uh, just has discovered a new drug uh, that's going to cure uh, uh, that's going to cure all kinds of cancer better than anything that we've got, uh, the idea of efficient markets is that that information should get quickly. Re- recorded uh, and uh, impounded into the price of the security. Uh, But I think that you uh, could have 95% of the market indexed. You could have 99% of the market indexed, and you'd still have enough active managers for price discovery and to make the market efficient in the sense that information will get reflected into market prices. But just as a thought experiment, Suppose the critics were right. Suppose everybody indexed, and this drug company had this uh, 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 cure uh, for pancreatic cancer, for example, where we really don't have a cure now, uh, and nothing happened to the price. I can't believe in a free market, in a capitalist system, that somebody isn't going to say with their money, hey, wait a minute. Uh, I would say with my money, I'm an indexer. And if I see that this doesn't happen, somebody is going to then take some money and go and buy that drug company. Uh, And so I think it's just insane to say that there's going to be so much indexing that there'll be nobody around to make the market efficient, nobody around to make sure this price discovery. I just don't believe that. We're in a capitalist system, and once there's an opportunity for profit, somebody is going to take it. And the worry that indexing is going to destroy our markets is uh, certainly not one of the worries that keeps me up at night. Extremely well said. I mean, I've always said that you have these market participants who are always motivated by profit. They're always going to look to arbitrage. And if you talk about, well, if you talk about active managers in particular, I mean, they're incentivized by the the, the management fees that that they're making, right? And they're not going to go away. And they're still going to advertise that, boy, we know how to beat the market. 
Burton, on the topic of uh, price discovery, let's pivot here and talk about these meme stocks. So uh, stocks like GameStop and and AMC and some of the other ones out there that have been swarmed by retail investors. And one of the things that I have seen mentioned is that these price moves uh, seem to fly in the face of the efficient market hypothesis, which, of course, you've championed. And I'm curious, how do you reconcile the moves in a stock like GameStop with the efficient market theory? And perhaps if you want, you can talk more about, you know, exactly what this theory means to you in general. But but how do you yeah, reconcile yeah. Well, that? Well, the, the point is, uh, the efficient market theory for me means that information gets quickly recorded into uh, prices, that there is uh, that price discovery. It does not mean that the price is always right. In fact, uh, my own view is the price is always wrong. What the efficient market uh, uh, hypothesis says is uh, the price may be always wrong, but nobody knows whether it's too high uh, or uh, too low, and therefore there are no arbitrage opportunities. There are no obvious opportunities uh, for gain. Uh, so it doesn't mean the price is always right. And given the meme stocks, uh, there's no question that the price is always wrong. Uh, there's no doubt that the uh, GameStop price uh, uh, was uh, uh, wrong at $2, and it was wrong at $400. Uh, and uh, a lot of hedge funds who bet against it uh, uh, really uh, 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 got themselves uh, in an enormous amount of uh, trouble. So uh, what... Uh, there can be craziness in the market. I mean, in my book, I spent three chapters on bubbles in the market, and uh, the meme stocks uh, are certainly uh, an example of that. I think what we've got that started during the pandemic is people didn't have uh, sports teams, they didn't have live sports to gamble on, uh, and uh, they had a lot of time on their hands, and they're at home in front of the computer. Uh, and so you started to have uh, a gambling pandemic that uh, went into the stock market because that was the place where prices changed all the time, uh, and uh, you could do your gambling. And I think with the uh, uh, the meme stocks with GameStop, with AMC, uh, with the Reddit mob, uh, uh, you uh, have uh, found uh, that this and, and uh, the, the ascension of Robinhood, uh, uh, where they uh, have actually got their site uh, set up so that it looks like a gambling site, uh, uh, there's a lot of that, and there's a lot of crazy pricing. Uh, But again, uh, with uh, GameStop and AMC right now, does that mean that, uh, boy, I know better than the market and uh, I will short these? The people who've shorted them uh, uh, got themselves uh, in an enormous amount of trouble. And let me just say one other thing that I haven't seen much said about uh, uh, in... um, the discussion of the meme stocks. Uh, uh, Obviously, I think it's crazy, but the funny part of it and almost the paradoxical part of it is, take AMC, which uh, borrowed heavily uh, during the pandemic when nobody was going to the theaters and uh, 
Uh, it looked like they were sure to go into bankruptcy. But what happened was, with the meme stock craze, they were actually able to raise money. And it's a real paradox. Uh, if that company actually gets saved because they were able to raise enough money because of the meme stock craze to then pay off their debt and uh, uh, and uh, uh, live to fight again. So, the, as I say, there is a real uh, economic effect from this, uh, and uh, uh, it will be very interesting to see whether it uh, plays out. Uh, GameStop uh, trying to sell games on discs when it's all done uh, over the net now. Uh, maybe it will reinvent itself, but... Uh, uh, the whole thing uh, is uh, just a, uh, as far as I'm concerned, a gambling pandemic. And what is very likely to happen is there will be some winners. Uh, but what we know about day traders, what we know about people who do this, that most of them, uh, most of them are going to lose. And uh, it's very dangerous. I like the idea of democratizing investment, but I think that uh, if this is the way you get into the market and you lose your shirt, uh, 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 this isn't good for the long run. Uh, this is not my idea of how markets should be democratized. Well, do you worry at all that uh, younger investors in particular, I think especially ones who got involved in the markets, let's say over the past year and a half or so, do you worry that perhaps their perception of investing might be skewed now, that they may not accept, you know, the, the quote unquote average returns of index funds, right? Because they've seen these huge uh, returns in meme stocks and Bitcoin and, and so forth. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, I think that... Uh uh, that could, in fact, in the long run, uh, uh, sour them uh, from uh, investing. Now, look, you know, I've got no objection to gambling. I like to gamble myself. Uh, I like to go to the horse races. But I know perfectly well that if I bet on every horse in the race, I'm going to lose 20% of my money because the track takes 20% off for running the track for uh, taxes uh, uh, and uh, other uh, expenses. So uh, in some sense, the stock market is a better place to gamble because there's no 20% uh, uh, tax uh, uh, and uh, expense take from it. So I think, uh, uh, you know, it's a better way to gamble, but there's no doubt in my mind that in the long run, the people who do this, even the people who've made some money at the beginning, eventually they will lose. And uh, uh, this is, uh, I do worry a lot that this could sour them from uh, investing uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the long run. I mean, again, my answer to these people would be, uh, you want to do this, you want to have fun, it's probably better than the lottery. It's better than going to the horse races. Uh, you know, the odds are a little better in your favor than going to uh, 
a casino and playing the roulette wheel. Uh, this is a better uh, bet for you. But for heaven's sakes, it's not investing. Uh, do something like we do in Wealthfront. Have a diversified portfolio of index funds for the long haul. And then around the edges, just as I say with the ESG investing, uh, you want to do some gambling around the edges, that's fine. But it's not investing, and it's not the way that you should prepare for your retirement. Given your response there, I think I know how you're going to answer this next question, but I have to ask you, um, any quick thoughts on Bitcoin and crypto? Do you have any strong views there? Uh, I do have a very strong view uh, about um, uh, Bitcoin. And again, uh, could Bitcoin sell for $100,000? Absolutely. <laughs> could Bitcoin uh, sell for uh, uh, $10? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you've got this Dogecoin that was started as a joke and uh, went from half of one cent to almost 75 cents uh, overnight. Any of these things can happen. But is this the currency of the future? I think absolutely not. Uh, this is uh, a currency whose main use is for illegal transactions, uh, whose main use uh, currently, recently has been uh, for uh, ransomware. This is not something governments are going to allow uh, over the long run. Will we have cryptocurrencies uh, in the long run? Yes, we will. But they'll be government issued. No government is going to want to let the private sector control its currency. And uh, I think this is, uh, again, part of the gambling uh, pandemic. Uh, and eventually, you know, will there be some winners of Bitcoin? Absolutely. You know, there are uh, people who uh, uh, bought it uh, uh, at uh, one price and uh, sold it when it doubled. Uh, that's fine. But eventually, uh, Bitcoin, eventually, my prediction is that governments will outlaw it. You're already seeing that the Chinese are very worried about it. They're very worried that the mining of the Bitcoin uh, is uh, consuming too much power. Uh, it is not something governments are going to allow to be the currency of the future. The future digital currency will, in my view, be issued by governments. Burton, just a few minutes left before I let you go. Uh, I would absolutely love to get your thoughts on the markets moving forward. And I know you'd be the first to say, we don't know, right? We don't have a crystal ball. It's a random walk. But as you look at the current environment, is there anything keeping you up at night? I know there's been a lot of talk about inflation this year. There are other investors concerned about stock valuations right now. It, any quick thoughts? Sure. Uh, let me just say that clearly uh, – valuation uh, ratios are quite high. Uh, and uh, what that does mean is that I think we ought to be, uh, we have no idea what the stock market is going to do. I mean, uh, as you suggested, that would be my answer. <laughs> but what we do know is from these valuation levels, 
uh, it's very unlikely that the long-run rates of return are going to be the 10% that we've been used to over the last 100 years. Uh, one really uh, should expect uh, only uh, single-digit returns and possibly even just uh, mid-single-digit returns. It also means that, uh, in my view, that you ought to be particularly aware of uh, the advantages of international diversification. Uh, <clears throat> evaluation ratios are much lower uh, in uh, Europe and Japan. Uh, they're much lower in emerging markets, and I think that true diversification means you want a global portfolio. So uh, I think that the valuation ratios in the United States do suggest let's make sure that we're really diversified, uh, including, um, uh, including uh, uh, international uh, stocks. So uh, that would be my view about uh, uh, where uh, valuations uh, are now, uh, not a prediction of what the stock market is going to do. Now, just for the second part of your question, I am somewhat more worried about inflation than the Federal Reserve is. Perhaps the 5 or 4% readings that we've had recently that the, perhaps the Federal Reserve is right, perhaps uh, it's all temporary, but I am much more worried that, in fact, our era of inflation being in the one, one and a half percent range is probably over, uh, and that uh, inflation in the future. Not that we're going to go back to the bad old days of the 70s and early 80s, but that uh, inflation is very likely, in my view, over the intermediate term to be above uh, 2% and quite likely uh, uh, above 3%. So uh, put me down as someone who is more worried about inflation than the Federal Reserve uh, is. And uh, uh, I uh, would point out one other thing. We've got too much debt in the country. We've got too much debt. We've got too much corporate debt. Uh, we'll get rid of the debt, but I'm worried that we will get rid of it the way we've always gotten rid of debt, the way we got rid of it after World War II we got we're rid of the very high government debt after World War II in the uh, age-old way of inflating it away. And uh, I think we're likely to uh, do the same thing again. And it does make me very skeptical about uh, uh, buying uh, bonds. Uh, let's take a 10-year Treasury at uh, under 1.5%. Even if the Federal Reserve is right, even if inflation is going to go right back down to 2%, their target, uh, if I get 1.5% interest and 2% gets taken away from me with inflation, it's a negative rate of return, and that doesn't seem to me to be a good investment bargain. 
Couldn't agree more. I actually said yesterday it's a depressing environment looking at, uh, at real yields right now. Uh, Burton, we are going to have to leave it there. Uh, tremendous perspective today. Just an absolute pleasure connecting. Greatly appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Burton Malkiel. I'm now joined by Sunil Wahal, professor of finance at Arizona State University and academic consultant to Avantis Investors, who currently offers 80 ETFs, nearly $6.5 billion in assets. This less than two years after launching their first ETF, by the way. Avantis has had a highly successful ETF entrance. And Sunil himself has an impressive background. Uh, He's been published extensively in the Journal of Finance, the Journal of Financial Economics, the Review of Financial Studies, among other publications. Uh, He was also a consultant to Dimensional Fund Advisors for nearly 15 years. He sits on the investment committees for several registered investment advisors, and he's now on the line with me from California. Sunil, thanks for joining me this week. Morning. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well, and you know, it's interesting I don't always see academic consultants to ETF issuers. This was new to me as I, I looked at your role. And so uh, th- this definitely has me intrigued. I'm curious, what, what does this entail? Like, like, how do you interact with Avantis? Well, you know, I, I will say that first and foremost, I'm still a financial economist and a, and a professor. <laughs> but since so much of my work is in the area of uh, investment strategies and the implementation of those investment strategies it's sort of a natural place uh for for me to be involved so my role at avantis you know i've known the folks there for a long time um probably 15 years maybe longer is really just to ensure that the knowledge that we get from financial science uh, is converted into practice properly, and it's converted into practice in a way that ultimately benefits uh, investors. So that, you know, basically just <clears throat> the things that we discover in academia get employed. Not everything gets employed, but the things that should get employed do get employed, and they're they're done properly. Right now, Avantis offers five stock ETFs, three bond ETFs, and I should mention for uh, listeners, Avantis is under the American Century umbrella, so they're a sub-brand of American Century. Uh, but, Sunil, we're going to focus on the equity side of the equation this week, and I thought it might be good to, to just start with a few basics. Uh, so you were talking about your role with Avantis, and you mentioned this term, financial science, which I've seen on the Avantis website as well. What, what exactly does that mean? Well, the the financial science has to do with valuations, how to think about expected returns. So I'll focus on the equity side, but <clears throat> there's a there's a similar process for the for the fixed income side as well. Um, the, the the science behind these things has to do with valuation equations, how one thinks about expected returns uh, for securities uh, or for groups of securities, what are the right inputs? How, how does one make the adjustments? All the way down to the plumbing. How do you design a portfolio or, or as I call it, portfolio engineering, where you take that science and then 
put it to work in a in a live portfolio, not a paper portfolio. A paper portfolio is great on paper, as I think a lot of people <laughs> will know. But but delivering them in a live portfolio is a is a whole different ball game. You've got to worry about all sorts of things: turnover, scale, tracking your risk management, trading costs, ticket charges. The list goes on and on. So the science is really on both parts. It's on the construction and the engineering and then the implementation itself. Okay, so when I think of the Avantis approach in a nutshell, I think small cap tilt, I think value tilt, a focus on profitability. Let's talk more about each of these. And actually, I guess small cap tilt is pretty straightforward, right? So let's focus on the other two, value and profitability, because it seems like there's a lot of debate about the best way to measure these. I think especially on value. I mean, we have some people out there now saying value investing is dead. Uh, Talk about the Avantis approach to value stocks. So you've you've uh, brought up one of my pet peeves. As, you know, as human beings, we're sort of subject to the tyranny of classification. You're either red or you're yellow, but wait a minute, you can't be orange. So if you think about this, Morningstar introduced its style box back in, I want to say, 1992, and since then, funds are either or ETFs are either. In one box or the other. They're either value or your growth or you're something like that. You know, you've, you've got to be pigeonholed. And the way that, that I think about this is that's a crude way to look at the world. And it certainly doesn't match up with, again, I'll use the same term, financial science. So, so here's what we know. A value strategy, when you think of value stocks, a value strategy involves buying cheap assets. But the assets can be cheap for a reason, Right. Imagine that you're going to buy a house, and it's really cheap relative, relative to others in the neighborhood. So don't you ask yourself why it's that cheap? You know, is it cheap because perhaps the couple that's selling the house is getting divorced and they need to sell? Or you know, is it something out of Breaking Bad, like a drug den? Or does it have a termite problem? So, so you want to ask yourself, why is that asset cheap? And most people who think about these sorts of things will say, well, it depends on what you get out of the house. Will you be able to live in it? How long will you be able to live in it? The same sort of logic applies to securities, to stocks, or, or to other securities for that matter. So you want to think about both the price of the security relative to its fundamental value, however you want to measure fundamental value, and the stream of profits that it will deliver in the future. So that and, and then the stream of profits part, is really important because we think about these things jointly. So you want to think about prices and the future stream of profits together, not one and the other separately. And if you think about value funds or ETFs, they're generally just trying to buy something that's cheap. So the fact that these things are joint has a long history in research in financial economics, and it's at the heart of what Avantis does. But, but, but let me get back to what you're asking, which is really the, the details of how one measures these things. And the devil really is in the detail. You're right. There's been a ton of controversy about how do you measure value. In fact, there's a very new piece of work done by some researchers out of, out of uh, Harvard and MIT that's, that's pretty interesting. 
they basically say that if you measure value stocks using what they're called old metrics, things like the ratio of book equity to market equity or something similar, its ability to explain future returns has diminished enormously over time. So in other words, this thing worked really well back in the day, and over time, it's deteriorated. Now, that could be because the economy has changed a lot over time. You know, we know know we're in a service-oriented economy um, with a lot more intangibles or because a lot of fund complexes use the same sort of, I'll call them, stayed old metrics. I mean, the bottom line is if you don't keep up with progress in this thing, you get left in the dust because the financial markets are really, really unforgiving. So... What to do with intangibles, right? That's the elephant in the room. Everybody talks about intangibles. So I think the way to think about intangibles is to ask where they come from. They're basically two types. So think of intangibles as coming from inside the firm, what are often called internally developed intangibles. That might be, you know, somebody uh, spending $500 million on R&D. So that's an intangible. It's an investment. Now, is that good R&D or bad R&D? Does it develop uh, a new product so that it generates a stream of profits in the future? Or is it money down the drain? It's really, really hard to tell. And there are plenty of people and plenty of research that arbitrarily take some ratio of that, like a fifth, um, kind of like a depreciation, right, and says, well, a fifth of it will be profitable, but that's entirely arbitrary. So it's very hard to take internally developed intangibles and say, incorporate them into your measure of value. The externally developed intangibles are different, and they're much more easy to understand and to handle, and and, and Amantis does make those adjustments. So an externally developed intangible is something like Uh, when company A buys company B. So it could be something like, if you remember from back in the day, I'm old enough to to remember things like the AOL Time Warner acquisition, right? The worst of all kind. Or, you know, more recently, Facebook buying Instagram or WhatsApp or et cetera, et cetera. So when a company buys another one, the difference between the purchase price and the fair value of the assets is recorded as goodwill. And if you remember old accounting, you know, sometimes that goodwill gets impaired and written off, et cetera, et cetera. So that's another way to acquire an intangible. And one can make that adjustment. Avantis does make that adjustment. And it makes a big difference to what one thinks of as a value firm. So the devil is in the details. But again, the devil is in the details, not just with respect to measuring value, because I said at least the way the, way the uh, financial science works and the way that, that Avantis thinks about this, it's not just about the price or the, the value, but also about the stream of future profits. And measuring those is tricky as well. So you've got to clean out stuff in future profitability, things like... Um, uh, uh, adjustments that accountants will make to, to accruals, 
right? Cleaning out a cools makes a big difference to how one measures profitability. So to what Avantis really does is, is cleans up both those measures and thinks about value and profitability jointly, which I think ties very closely to the financial science that all of this sort of started off with. It just doesn't fit into a neat little, I mean, you can try to stick it in a style box if you, if you want, and, and, you know, the morning stars of the world and other vendors will put uh, these ETFs into a style box because, you know, that's their job, and I understand that. But it's not nearly as, as, as clean as one would imagine. Think orange rather than red and yellow. That makes sense. Makes perfect sense. And by the way, for listeners, I should have noted the five stock ETFs offered by Avantis are the U.S. Small Cap Value ETF ticker symbol AVUV. There's an international version of this AVDV, and then there are what I'll call core ETFs covering U.S. equities. That's AVUS. Developed international equities AVDE, and then emerging markets AVEM. Um, Sunil, we only have a few minutes uh, left. I, I am really curious as someone who's clearly put a tremendous amount of time into researching these factors, small cap and value and profitability. Has the market environment over the past decade or so frustrated you? I mean, we did see a rotation earlier this year into small value, but I think everyone knows the story overall, which is it's largely been a market dominated by mega cap growth. I'm just curious, what's been your take as you've watched this unfold? I think that's funny because if I if I pop open sort of Morningstar.com, one of the headlines today is value stocks rally runs out of steam. That's today. Just Perfect now, timing. Actually, if I pull it up, yeah. <laughs> so, is it frustrating? Yes, it can be. Um, uh, will it continue to be frustrating? Maybe, um, but we've seen this movie before, so. Uh, there are long periods in which value stocks or growth stocks, you know, go through periods of severe underperformance. These things, the valuation equations, the, the science on which this stuff relies on, doesn't look at anything on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis or even an annual. You know, we're talking about <clears throat> um, changes in prices over long periods of time, three years, five years, ten years, although... You know, value stocks have underperformed for for quite some time. Again, I'll go back to the same thing. If you think of value as just price relative to some fundamental value, then the answer is yes, it'll be really, really frustrating. If you think of it as the joint intersection of value and profitability, then your frustration is not as severe, shall we say. There's not as much angst um, because... You know, you're you're not using those same old buckets. But yeah, it can be frustrating, and it's been frustrating for many many investors. There's, you know, financial markets are brutal. They just they don't make life easy for anyone at any point in time. And so it's a tough lesson, I think. About two minutes left to your last point on on small cap value. You know, you look at the the small cap value rally earlier this year. I think a number of people just viewed that as a small cap junk rally, right, with meme stocks leading the way. Any quick thoughts on that? I mean, like were your students asking you about GameStop and and AMT and some of these other meme stocks? Yeah, students always ask about meme (laughs) stocks because they're they're all over social media, right? So meme stocks are a dangerous version of musical chairs, except 
the cost is not that you don't get to sit on the chair, but, you know, it can really, really hurt you. So, you know, this, this is not new, let me say. Meme stocks have an old history, what we call meme stocks now. It used to be called noise trader risk. Uh, Larry Summers wrote a paper about it a long, long time ago. Short squeezes are nothing new. Think back to Volkswagen back in 2008 when Porsche was trying to buy it. It's not a place for individual investors, um, especially those who don't understand the plumbing of financial markets. Things like margin call requirements, trading costs, settlement, trading, all of these details. So can they be dangerous? Absolutely. Is it a place for retail investors or even very smart investors to muck around with individual stocks? No, it really isn't. But, you know, there's a gambling preference in society. People, people like to do these kinds of things, so they're going to do them. Some fraction will unfortunately get burned. Some fraction will do well. Um, and you'll see selective reporting of that. Um, it's really, it's not a place for, for what I will call mainstream investors. It's a dangerous place. Well, Sunil, I always we'll have... warn my students to stay away from those. Sorry. No, no. I think I think you're offering some pretty solid advice there uh, to, to most investors. Uh, Sunil, we'll have to leave it there. Just a pleasure connecting this week. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. That was Sunil Wahal, academic consultant to Avantis Investors. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank our sponsors, NASDAQ and Invesco. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through etfprime.com. All right, really fun show lined up next week. I'll be joined by ETF Trends' Dave Nodig. We're going to do rapid-fire ETF questions. And then I'll be joined by the one and only Ross Gerber, who will spotlight the Advisor Shares Gerber Kawasaki ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.